Uh, we'll be continuing in 2 Corinthians this morning. We're coming to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, finally. In chapter 11, we really see the core of the problem that Corinth was having, the core issue coming up again uh, in some detail this time, what Paul's concerns were for the church and what he intends for them, what they need to do about it. And we can learn a lot about the failure of the church in Corinth at that, up to that point and the things that we need to think about for ourselves. The analogy here in the beginning of chapter 11 is one of marriage. I betrothed you to one husband, he says to the Corinthian church, to the Corinthians, and that husband, of course, being Christ. And he says... He wants to present her as a pure virgin to Christ. That's why we read Ezekiel 16 this morning, even though it's a bit long. God uses that same analogy. It's, it's from the Old Testament. It's from the beginning, really, of unfaithfulness to God, spiritually speaking, being very similar to unfaithfulness in marriage. And so we will delve into what Paul says and what we should be thinking about it. But first, let us read the whole chapter, so we can get the context going. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent, serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles, even though I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you in a need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came to me from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their need. Their, their ends will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. 
What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you greatly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you beat it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am speaking like a madman. For far greater labors and far more imprisonments and countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift in the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toils and hardships and through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, am I and not weak? Who is made to fall, am I in, not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the government under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window through the wall and escaped his hand. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for being able to hear Paul's accounts of his ministry, Paul's defense of his ministry, and Paul's conviction of the sins of the churches. As we come to a big one of them here in this passage of 2 Corinthians 11, the first six verses, Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to look at our own hearts and our own lives, that we might see these things and look for them and understand them and transform our lives and be able to share the joy of these things with your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first two verses, we have Paul really sharing his pastoral concern for the Corinthians. And he says, bear with me in his boasting in the previous chapter and later in this chapter. This section we're in is surrounded by him showing that he isn't inferior to these false apostles. He was not boasting like them out of pride or selfish ambition, which God condemns both of them. But his boasting was for the sake of necessity, that they would not think too little of him and too much of these other false ministers. And in his boasting, he does restrain himself to what is necessary, not going beyond proper bounds, as he said back in chapter 10. As a modest man, he also points out his personal shortcomings in various places in this letter, lest men should think too highly of him and put their hope in him rather than in Christ. As he says later in this chapter, 
If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Verse 30, chapter 11. Paul was not at ease at all, but he was quite distressed at what was happening in Corinth, as we've seen several times in this letter, that distress really comes out. And he's, he's very passionate for the Corinthians. He's not looking for them to be his followers. The super apostles were looking for followers, trying to gain them for him. And that's why he calls them false apostles down in verse 13. He wasn't looking for their money, as his enemies seemed to imply, but his passion was for the Lord, not himself. And that's where his desire was for their walk with the Lord. The author of Hebrews knew well this passionate concern pastors have for the souls that God has entrusted with them. He writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, Hebrews 13, 17. I think throughout this letter and through both letters to the Corinthians, you can see Corinth does not have him rejoicing that much, but groaning in these problems, these divisions, this man following, this following the pagan Greeks and Romans of their area and their era in looking for the best and the brightest instead of what's true and what's holy. And so Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, we often think of jealousy as a bad thing, but here it is a good thing. Paul has this jealousy for them and for their souls because he will be giving an account for them. There are two kinds of jealousy at work in Corinth and in Paul and these false apostles and really in life in general. The first is the jealousy of self-love. It's sinful and it's harmful to both parties. You might suspect this of the scholastics Paul is battling in Corinth. You know, as is typical of those who want to be leaders in the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition, they were jealous for their own glory, their own power, their own station in life. They were jealous of being first. They had to keep that jealousy. I remember, was it in the Olympics not that long ago, figure skater getting her knee bashed in by the boyfriend of one of the other figure skaters? Because the other figure skater was first and now she was going to be second. So crippling her opponent. You know, that kind of jealousy to be first we see in human nature. And particularly in those who want to be leaders, particularly those who want to be leaders in that kind of a, an environment that they had in Corinth. Sadly, we see this in pastors too, both godly and ungodly. Uh, it's a shame when we see it in the godly pastors, but they, they get jealous when people visit a friend's church. They get jealous when people start talking about books they've read that were written by authors who are famous. They get jealous when they talk about some other pastor's ministry or some other pastor's video that they've watched. Jealous of giving to other ministries. Jealous for themselves and their place and their power. I shared sometime recently about a pastor in Cambodia who basically destroyed the church and left the ministry because one of the ladies in the church got married in another church instead of his. Uh, she was a child of members of the church. And he was jealous of that position. 
we see this as a very sinful thing. It's not a place that a Christian pastor should ever find himself being jealous for his glory. Remember what Jesus proclaimed to the apostles when they were squabbling over who would be first? When they asked to sit at his right and left hand, he calls them all together and he says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. Gentiles, the world, that's the way sinful man lives. He says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 29, 25 through 28. Now think about that. Men who rise to the top usually do so because of their greatness, their superior ability to talk and persuade, their eloquent preaching, their elegant reasoning, their elegant defense of themselves and their worthiness to be the leader. And God, Jesus, is saying, that's not how it should be amongst you. You're not the Lord of the church. You're not the Lord of your denomination. You're not the Lord of your people. You are their servant, just as Christ served us by saving our souls. So the leaders of the church should be the servants of the church. That's a kind of jealousy to be first. The jealousy of your own glory is incompatible with being a Christian leader. The second kind of jealousy, which we see here in Paul's jealousy, is not a jealousy for himself, but a jealousy for the Lord. Paul followed the example of Jesus rather than the worldly example in his jealousy. He declares it is a divine or God-centered jealousy, a jealousy for their faithfulness to the God, to God, for their purity to God. He is jealous for that. And now is where we get into that analogy of jealousy and adultery. The well, first thing, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one, number two, shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven or on earth beneath, or that it is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to the, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and to the third and fourth generation, etc. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, think about that. He is jealous for himself. In another place, he, is call, he calls himself the, the God of jealousy. He is jealous for his own worship, his own service. And Paul is jealous for his jealous God. His jealousy is infinitely perfect and holy. God's is. Right? It's based on his right as creator and his claim on the people who have entered covenant with him. You've entered this covenant, you shall obey this covenant. And that covenant is likened to the covenant of marriage, to be faithful to the one you've signed the covenant with, the one you've entered the covenant with. And so the reason he has this jealousy, Paul has this jealousy, is because he is jealous for God, who is jealous of his people. And he wants to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. 
I mentioned that self-jealousy was wrong, jealousy for yourself. However, the pastor who has a God-centered jealousy for God's faithfulness, or for people's faithfulness to God, um, has that jealousy not for himself, but a jealousy for the Lord, a divine jealousy. And that such a pastor like Paul may be jealous when people for, uh, attend a friend's unbelieving or heretical church. You shouldn't do that. You should go to faithful churches. If you go to them, you're going to get confused and led astray and enter into sinful thoughts and sinful practices. They may be jealous when they read or talk about some unbelieving, heretical pastor's books or ministries or watch his videos. Maybe jealous not for himself, but for God's worship. Jealous for their faithfulness. You're not being faithful if you're going to an unbelieving church and listening to the message. And so they may have that divine jealousy that Paul speaks for. Now, he gives the reason for his divine jealousy here as since I betrothed you to one husband to present him as a pure virgin to Christ. He's concerned about their spiritual idolatry, their spiritual adultery. And that's what we were reading about in Ezekiel this morning. Uh, since I betrothed you to one husband. First, I think we need to step back from the analogy and think about how it is in our own life. I think everybody here has been married or is married. How would you feel if your spouse went out and committed adultery? Think about that. The seventh commandment reads, you shall not commit adultery. The Old Testament law said the, both the adulterers, both the man and the woman should be put to death. You know, it was a serious crime, a horrible betrayal, and a betrayal of a covenant. Right? Marriage is not just a matter of agreement We'll be together for a while until we're done, and then we'll take off the ring, get a no-fault divorce, and move on to our next person. It's a covenant before God forever, well, for, for life. And it's a serious thing. It'd be difficult, if not impossible, for most people to reconcile if their spouse is off committing physical adultery. And it's disgusting. We don't want to have that person back. We don't want to be involved in that. Um, some people today, even in the church, claim that premarital sex is not a problem, but for the rest of their lives, they're thinking about, well, is the other person thinking about me or the one they had before me? And it's a, it's a corruption. It's the same sin. It's one of the variations. All sexual immorality falls under the, the, the umbrella of adultery in Scripture. And you know, adultery and being betrothed to Christ and being married to Christ, you know, remember betrothal was different than our idea of engagement. For us, engagement is that, that period of we've said we might be interested and we'll see how things work out and decide whether we're compatible and get married or not. For them, being betrothed was entering into the covenant and the waiting period was to make sure that the girl wasn't already pregnant with somebody else's child, because in Israel, the inheritance given by God to the family was to be passed to their children, and if she had committed adultery before marriage and was pregnant, it would go to the wrong person. And so they had that waiting period to make sure that she was pure. 
And so our being betrothed to Christ means we belong to him. You know, anything we do, any other gods we worship, any other idolatry we commit, be it money or self or glory, whatever it is, we are being unfaithful to God. From that modern point of view, you know, if while you were engaged, your wife had or husband had married relations with someone else, would you still want to go through with it? And no, you're not faithful, and I don't want to be joined to that other person, because that's what's happening. It's rather repugnant. I believe at the point a little bit, but really, if your spouse is committing adultery with prostitutes or with some other person, how do you? How would you ever want to be with them? And how offended would you be? I think of God, who is perfect in his holiness, how offended he is, as he's making the covenant with him like the covenant of marriage. And it's, it's rather rough, but if we really think about this, you know, we are entering into the marriage relationship with Christ. In Revelation 19, it talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb, where, you know, the virgins come to be with their, their new Lord, their husband. The church comes to be with Christ. And Paul is very concerned because he wants to present them as, he says, a pure virgin to Christ. Paul, as an apostle, an elder, a pastor, has that same goal that a father would have. A father does not walk down, want to walk down the aisle and say, well, here's my daughter, she's a whore, but... Enjoy your married life. <laughs> the pastor, the Apostle Paul, does not want to go to Christ and say, here is the church. Yes, they're worshiping other gods. Yes, they're filled with greed and all forms of idolatry. But here, take them. And that's not something the pastor wants to do any more than a father would want to do. He wants to present them as pure. And the Lord, of course, would greatly despise the impure. Now, you might wonder what kind of impurity or spiritual adultery is Paul referring to. And he gives us an example of that in verse 4, which we'll get to in due time. We'll try to stop before lunch, but we started late. Paul, though, is, is really greatly concerned with this whole problem of them committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. And he says, you know, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so your thoughts will be led astray from a pure devotion to Christ. How did the serpent deceive Eve? What happened? Well, I think we're going to read it because it's important to put that into the context of what Paul is talking about in Corinth. Genesis chapter 3, I'll just read the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave to her husband, and he ate with her. Note, Adam was not deceived. He willingly chose to sin. Adam has the greater sin here. We're not saying women made a great sin. Man made the worst sin, and their consequences show that. But I want to make two simple points about this. She was deceived and turned away from the pure worship and service to God. Then, because she was deceived, she was instrumental in tempting her husband, Adam. The deception that deceived her was through the cunning of Satan. And what did Satan do with his cunning? He, He misrepresents both God's word and God's character. Does God intend evil, that he's hiding good in the knowledge from you? That's the implication. In fact, I remember one of the uh, Scottish Rites books, the old, old, old one, talks about how Satan liberated man by helping him know good and evil. And that's the godlessness of the world. But that's misrepresenting God's character. God is not keeping us from knowing good and evil because he wants to hurt us or make us inferior, (laughs) but because the knowledge of evil is through the doing of it. And he didn't want us to corrupt ourselves. So he was deceitful in misrepresenting God's words and God's character. And that's the same thing that the false apostles are doing. That's the same thing that false teachers do, the same thing that all heretics do. They misrepresent God's word, and usually they misrepresent his character as well. And that's why Paul talks about them peddling God's word. You know, they try to change it and do parts of it to get what they want, be it money or prestige or followers. And so they peddle it for their profit. And they misrepresent it further by... What Paul calls you know, their deceitful handling of it, their, their misuse of it, their modifying it or correcting it, however you want to put it, to make it less offensive and more appealing, especially more appealing. They do it by tampering with God's word as well as peddling God's word. Peddling was in 2 Corinthians 2.17. And tampering with it in 2 Corinthians 4.2, the, the idea being that they change, just like Satan did, they alter what God said, imply a different meaning, or imply that God has ill intent here and you shouldn't follow it, and lead people astray, just as the sa- Satan led Eve astray. They practice this cunning by tampering with the word of God so that it appeal to men to sinful man. Paul warns Timothy of this, and we've read it many times, I suppose. I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is a judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers who suit their own passions, They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Written long after 1 Corinthians, as Paul was in prison, and this time we believe he really did die. He was executed, 
after Second Timothy was written. But what are they doing? They're, they're wanting men who will peddle the word, soft pedal it to appeal to them, who will modify it, tamper with it, so that it works for them. They want pastors who will sanitize it so that nobody's offended and turned away from the church so that they can all feel affirmed, safe, comforted, and confirmed even in their sins. They can only feel this way if God's word is not faithfully and sincerely and completely preached, as Paul says he did. Remember on his way to Jerusalem with the gifts for the poor persecuted saints? He was, we discussed that back in chapter 8 and 9. He says to the Ephesian elders, we read in Acts chapter 20, 26 and following, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention carefully to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to doorway disciples after themselves. Now, that certainly was what was already happening after he had left Corinth. Those things were already happening. He's warning the Ephesians, you know, as I'm gone and I can't write anymore, this will happen even more because I can't be there to help you. Watch it. But he's saying, I didn't peddle the word. I didn't tamper with the word. I preached it fully and faithfully so that Christ's bride, the church, would know what was pure and try to keep themselves pure. Without that knowledge of what God's word says, without that call to do what God's word says, people will not be pure. They will turn away over time. This means preaching the sins, preaching as sin and repentance to the sin, those things which sinful man holds very dear. Every society, every church, every person has sins that they hold more dear than others. And when you preach those, some people are alienated. And no doubt, people hated Paul, they stoned Paul, they whipped Paul, they chased him and beat him and drove him from city to city because he kept talking about the sins of that city, and of those people, and of that society, and calling them to repent of those sins and be reconciled to God. If he did not call them to repent of their sins, how would they know they were sinning? If they're not called to repent of their sins, how will they be reconciled? Now, people want a pastor to soft-pedal the word to them. They want it tampered with. They want it sanitized. But that is not what God wants for them. They want to be comfortable, but they can't be comfortable if the whole word of God is not preached to them. Now, the Old Testament contains warnings along these lines and the New Testament as well. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, remember your leaders, for those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus is the same, his teaching is the same. The word is the same, which is why the next verse is, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. 
For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Getting back into the food sacrifice idols thing. Hebrews 13, 7 through 9. But think about that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. The author of Jude, Jude writes, Beloved, I was eager to write you about our common faith and salvation, and I found it necessary to write to you to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints, Jude 3, verse 3. Uh, nothing changes in God's word. God knew the beginning from the end. He knew Adam would sin. He knew I would sin. He knows what's going to happen all the way up to the end. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Nothing needs to be changed. Nothing needs to be adjusted. Nothing needs to be tampered with. Nothing needs to be changed to help people feel better. The only way they can truly feel better is, of course, if they repent and are reconciled to God. The Old Testament, Leviticus 18, begins with, You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived. Nor shall you do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. That was verse 3 of Leviticus 18. Verse 30 says, So keep my charge and never practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. Never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The Bible doesn't change. God's will doesn't change. We can't improve the worship of God by adopting the practices of the world, which is what the church has done over and over, what Israel did over and over again, what the Christian church did over and over again, and what is happening in our very day. We adopt the, 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 the world's culture. We have to be culturally relevant by becoming the world. And it ends up simply corrupting the church. Paul gives a specific example here in verse 4, and it's a very horrifying example. Someone proclaims another Jesus than we proclaimed. There's only one Jesus, the true Jesus, the one who is presented in the Bible. When they start adjusting Scripture, when they start tampering with it and soft-pedaling it, it's no longer Jesus. It's God of their own imaginings. It's no different than the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the Hittites. It's not God. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is but one Lord and one way to heaven, which is through that Lord, one mediator. And he says, or if you received a different spirit than the one you received. There's, there's only one human or one Holy Spirit that can transform the human heart. Right? One, the spirit who takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh and makes you a new creation in Christ is the only spirit that we listen to, the only spirit that we should know. But men turn from that. Remember that Paul was telling them back in chapter 3, the first few verses, they were his letter of recommendation written on their hearts for the world to see. What was that written on their hearts? But that new person, that new life, that evidence that they were transformed and turned from their pagan idolatry and immorality and turned over their life to Christ and living for Christ. 
And then the very damning one, you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. We all know where a different gospel leads us to think. Our thoughts should always go to the book of Galatians, where in the first chapter, he proclaims there is not another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, if anyone is preaching to your gospel contrary to the one you received, the one that transformed your soul, let him be accursed. Paul, later in this chapter, stops calling them super apostles and calls them false apostles. For such men are false apostles, he says, starting in verse 13 here in 2 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise his servants, servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Think about that. Paul is saying, these men are coming to you proclaiming, I am an apostle of Christ. I am a servant of Christ. I am a pastor. I will lead you to Christ. But Paul is saying, these people who are not teaching the true gospel, not teaching the whole counsel of God, who are hiding things from you, who are soft-pedaling it, who are modifying it to make it acceptable, who are deceiving you to follow their ideas, he's calling them servants of Satan. I mean, that's very firm and very harsh. And this is the problem. This is really the whole problem, the center of this problem. You put up with it readily enough. The people were putting up with this deceivers. Now, some maybe were deceived as Eve was. They listen to the twisters, twisted ideas. They fall into the devil's trap. They think, yes, this, this sounds reasonable. Yes, this is good. Yes, this appeals to my heart, and I'm following my heart as I follow Jesus. Forgetting, of course, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And some maybe are doing this because they're deceived. Some, actually, many think that a lot, tolerating these people, putting up with what they're teaching, and allowing them to teach is a sign of Christian love. They don't want to follow Paul or Jude or Peter or John, who all wrote very harshly condemning heretics, and James too. But they suppose this is somehow love, accepting and honoring them even as they preach and teach sin. That's how we show Christian love. You're being unloving by condemning them, these people will say. But I would argue Christian love is first the love of God, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and love. Infinite in his justice, his holiness, his goodness. He doesn't love sin. God hates sin, and he's clear about that, and he hates sinners, and he punishes them. They're very mistaken who think showing love to heretics is what God commands. What is true love for a heretic? telling them this is your sin. You need to stop this sin. You need to repent of this sin. You need to be reconciled with God because if you don't turn from your sin, you're storming your way down the broad path that leads to destruction. 
you're going to hell. Repent. To love somebody is to keep them from suffering the torments of hell forever by informing them of what they need to do and trying to persuade them to do it. We know that only the Holy Spirit is effectual in persuading men, but it is our duty to try and persuade them to turn from their wicked ways. And that is what it means to love them, not to help them go to hell. So Paul was very troubled, and the church was very troubled because of tolerating error. And that brings us to verse 5 and 6, where Paul goes over the solution to his pastoral concern. And this is most critical, but I'll be very brief. Paul is saying, I am not inferior to these people. Yes, I'm unskilled in preaching, and he, he mentions that several times. I came to you, brothers, and not proclaim anything to you but the testimony of God. I didn't proclaim it with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the power of God. First chapter of 2 Corinthians. Or the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Boy. Second chapter of 1 Corinthians, sorry. He rejected the sophistry of the Greco-Roman philosophers and the scholastics. And so he seemed to be unskilled in preaching, even though, in speaking, even though he was considered quite skilled as being able to proclaim the gospel and have so many followers of Christ through his ministry and through his preaching. He's insisting now that that did not make him inferior to these false apostles as they were claiming. And he says, you know me, you know my faith, you know my God my faith in God, you know, my diligence personally in seeking him and in proclaiming him. And you know, my work among you testified by the, repeatedly by the transformation of their hearts. And so he's essentially telling them here, stop trusting in these unfed, unvetted and outright heretical teachers and leaders. In our day and age, we can add books and YouTubers you know, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't trust them. If they aren't speaking according to the word of God, you get very quickly to the point where these people are off on the gospel. They're off on the, the image of who God is. They're, they're wrong on the work of Christ on the cross. And you should stop listening to them. Knowing God through faithful ministers and faithful teachers who aren't peddling the word, who aren't tampering with the word, but are preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God in truth and in love. That will allow them to grow in grace. That will allow them to know what is pure so that they can try to be pure. You can't try to be pure if you don't know what is pure. If you think God is pleased by sin and you go on sinning, you're not being pure. You need to know the difference. And the only way to do that is studying the word of God and following godly teachers who are preaching the whole counsel of God, not hiding anything from you, not soft-pedaling it so that you're not offended, not altering it so you're not convicted, not making you comfortable, but teaching you to repent and seek reconciliation with God. Because true comfort can only come from peace with God. Peace with God can only come from repenting of our sins. And repenting of our sins can only come in knowing that something is sin.
So Paul is kind of beating that point to death through this whole book of 2 Corinthians because that is the core problem they have. They're giving ear to false teachers. They're giving ears to false apostles. They're being bamboozled by their superior speaking and wisdom and arguing techniques. But those things are proof that they aren't following God from the beginning. And so if we want to be presented to God as a pure virgin, we want to be able to wear the white gown, not the black gown, to our wedding. We want to be clothed in robes of light. We need to be pure. To be pure, we need to focus on the word, the whole thing, even the uncomfortable parts. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that it is hard at times to be convicted of our sins. It's embarrassing, it's uncomfortable, and it takes away the joy and comfort in our life, fleeting though it may be, that sin brings to us, or at least that we seek in it. Help us, Lord, to see sin the way you do, as adultery, as disgusting, is repugnant in our lives so that we might understand that relationship with you and seek to be perfect in purity by repenting of our sins, by loathing and hating our sins and desiring you alone to be our Lord, our Master, our God, to be the husband of the bride. Pray, Lord, that you would bless our hearts to seek these things and to be careful to guard our hearts. For we know that if we pour garbage into them, garbage will come out. For over, out of the overflow of the, house, the heart, the mouth speaks. Purify us, Lord, and enlighten us that we might be pure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.